The following message by Dr. Matt Thornton is part of a series through the life of Christ. Jesus Christ only lived 33 years on earth and died a few miles from where he was born. Yet his life and death changed the world. Has he changed you? Join us on this journey from Bethlehem to Jerusalem as we follow the Lord from his birth to his resurrection, preaching some of the most amazing events recorded in Scripture. Open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 2. About 12 years passed between last Sunday to this Sunday, in the life of Jesus, that is. Luke chapter 2. Historians often love to research the childhood of great men and great women to see if their childhood experiences played a role in shaping them and molding them into becoming the people that they became. I'm going to give you two very different examples of that. One is Michael Jordan. When he was a sophomore in high school, he was cut from his basketball team. And that failure just fueled his desire for greatness. Another very different example is a man named Alexander the Great. And when Alexander was growing up, he loved the Greek epic poem, the Iliad. And the Iliad details some exploits of a mythological Greek warrior named Achilles. And many scholars believe that Alexander wanted to be a new Achilles. So he took over the world, and in 15 years, he never lost a single battle. Sometimes it's meaningful to know what childhood experiences shaped a man, but the Bible's almost silent about Jesus' childhood, and he's the greatest man ever. Obviously, there's no failure that drove him to greatness, and we're not told of any Old Testament hero that he grew up idolizing. The only recorded story of his childhood that is true and inspired is found in Luke's gospel. And it was not given to us to to teach us why Jesus became the man he became as an adult, but rather it was given to show us that by the age of 12, Jesus already knew exactly who he was and knew his purpose on this earth. And that's our focus this morning as we consider this story is that by the age of 12, Jesus understood who he was and why he was here. But you need to make that question about yourself as well. Do you understand who you are and why you are here? So let's jump into Luke chapter 2, verse 40, and consider this verse for a moment where Luke just summarized the early years of Jesus' life with just one statement. Luke chapter 2, verse 40 And the child, that's Jesus, grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Could probably preach the whole sermon on just that verse, but we'll we'll go through it quickly. Once Mary and Joseph settled back in Nazareth uh, after Jesus was born and after the trip to Egypt for their protection, Jesus grew up just like any other child. But he was also unlike any other child ever born, right? And this verse points to one of the most unsearchable mysteries. That's how Jesus, the divine Son of God, grew up. Jesus grew up. He didn't grow into being God. He was God. We talked about that last week. That was a fact. He was God long before his birth as a human in Bethlehem. He's the creator. He has always been God. He always will be. But once he became a man, he grew up just as you would expect the perfect man to do. 
It's probably easiest for us to comprehend his physical growth more than anything else because it's, it's more tangible and we see how children grow up. Naturally, Jesus did the same. He ate, he gained weight, he grew taller, he outgrew his clothes. We understand that. We know that he didn't remain a baby for his whole life. But he grew in other areas as well. And we'll talk a little bit more about that in verse 52 when we get there, sort of his balanced growth and maturity. But even as you consider Jesus' human maturation and just this boy reaching milestones that other children reach, it's still unsearchable, isn't it? I cannot truly comprehend how the God who gives man the strength to stand had to learn how to walk. I can't truly fathom how the God who confused all languages at the Tower of Babel had to learn how to speak. But I trust it by faith. Growing physically, though, was not the only growth that Jesus uh, did. Luke notes he became strong in spirit. Not every manuscript adds in spirit, but they all note that Jesus' physical growth and that strength, that they were coupled by him being continually filled with wisdom. And all of that just, that's an indication of the Father's grace upon his life, which is what Luke mentions as well. And with this statement, that's such a big statement, that Jesus grew and that he was filled with wisdom and the Father's grace was upon him. And then we have this story in verse 41 through 51, where the Holy Spirit led Luke to record just one childhood story in the life of Jesus. But it's a story that demonstrates what he just said. It demonstrates this powerful spirit within Jesus. It demonstrates his wisdom. It demonstrates the grace of God in his life. And it's a very famous story when he was 12 years old during the Passover. So let's read these verses, verse 41 through 51. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days as they returned... The child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem, and Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey. And they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And we'll stop there for right now. Year by year, as Jesus grew up, his family did something that was extremely important. And that's verse 41 tells us that they went to Jerusalem every year to observe the feast of the Passover. And the Passover was the most important feast in ancient Israel because it commemorated that final night of Egyptian slavery. When Moses returned to Egypt and God sent him to deliver his people, 
the Passover uh, commemorates what we call the 10th plague, where there would be this destroyer come through Israel that night or come through Egypt that night, and all the firstborn would die. It would be the final act of judgment upon the Egyptians and upon the Egyptians' gods. But God told the Israelites and anyone else who would trust him, if you would take a lamb and you will slay that lamb and smear the blood over the doorposts and sides of your house, that that destroyer would pass over that house and that house would be spared. There would be mercy because that house trusted God and obeyed. So the Passover was a memorial, a reminder of how God delivered the Egyptians that final night, delivered the Israelites that final night in Egypt. But it also looked forward, didn't it? It was also a work that looked forward to what the Messiah would do when he came. All of those lambs that were killed throughout history, they couldn't take away sin, right? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So they... All they did was foreshadow what the true Lamb of God would do. Do you remember what John the Baptist said about Jesus? Do you remember what he called him? He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Corinthians, Paul wrote, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. And Peter wrote that we were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. So year after year, the Passover pointed to how the Son of God would one day die on the cross. That he would shed his blood so that anyone who believes by faith would be shown mercy by God. They would have forgiveness instead of judgment. In short, the Passover pointed to Jesus' death. So imagine this, that year after year, Mary and Joseph are taking this child to Jerusalem to observe a feast that pointed to his own death. Year after year, they brought the true Lamb of God to the temple as they taught him about what was going on and then handed their physical lamb to the priest. And as the child, Jesus attended each year with his faithful and obedient parents, and he was growing and increasing in wisdom and in his awareness of everything that these festivities meant and what it anticipated, at least by the age of 12, he knew, this is all about me. I think it's safe to say that nobody else really got that just yet. Can you imagine knowing the exact day of your future death and attending a visitation each year on that date? Commemorating that future event? I don't really know what that would do to our feeble minds. But Jesus began to embrace it. In fact, that year when his family returned to Nazareth, he remained in Jerusalem. But before we consider Jesus in the temple just yet, I first just want to explain how this happened because we cannot wrap our minds around going on a road trip and leaving your 12-year-old behind in a city. That's bad parenting, right? Maybe today it would be, but not back then, okay? This scene is possible because of the time and their culture. Mary and Joseph were not bad parents, during that time, the way people traveled to the Passover was just in big caravans. 
almost entire villages might come and travel together, big families and acquaintances. And they traveled in these caravans that stretched literally for miles and miles sometimes. The children would run back and forth between the different groups. The women might be in one group talking. The men might be in another group talking. There wasn't a family minivan, you know, where they were always together. And so just the culture of the travel played a role in this. All the families weren't always just tightly together. But also Jesus' age probably played a role in this as well. And there's several significant ages, kind of milestone ages for a Jewish boy as he grew up. And one of those was when he was three years old. When he was three is when he started to wear those tasseled garments that the law of Moses required. When he was five, his mother would start teaching him some of the law. And he would start memorizing some Old Testament passages, one of which was the Jews called the Shema, which, which was from Deuteronomy 6 that says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Those were milestone steps for a Jewish boy, but even more significant was this age 12 or 13 when the child would become a son of the law or a son of the covenant, which is what bar mitzvah means. And what it signified to a Jewish boy who's becoming a man is that he is now considered an adult and he is now responsible to keep the Mosaic law for himself. And so since Jesus is right at this age where a boy would sort of leave childhood for manhood, Mary might have thought Jesus was with Joseph and the men. Joseph might have thought he's still with Mary and the, and the women or playing with some of the other kids. This is not bad parenting. They weren't neglecting him. Verse 44 tells us they thought he was in the company. I don't know exactly how it happened, but maybe we could see the caravan starts to leave Jerusalem and Jesus is in the caravan and then he looks back and he just heads back to the temple. And Mary and Joseph thought he was with them. Well, when the caravan stopped for the night, that's probably when they realized Jesus was not in the group as they looked for him that night. So probably early the next morning, they journeyed right back to Jerusalem, which would have been the second day. And then on the third day, they, they find him in the temple. And he's with the rabbis. Let's read verse 46 and verse 47 again. It came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions, and all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. The temple complex was a very large plateau, and during the first century there were several different courtyard areas in the temple. The innermost courtyard in the southeastern corner was a spot where the really respected rabbis would gather, and people would flock around them, and they would teach and discuss things. And that's what this word doctor in verse 46 literally means. It means teachers, your translation may say that. And it refers to those, those rabbis and those teachers of the law. And during that time period, there were several renowned Jewish rabbis. There was one man named Rabbi Hillel that was pushing 100 years old at the time. Can you imagine how respected that man was? There was another man that I guess we would call it his rival. His name was Rabbi Shammai. And I say his rival because these two men, Hillel and Shammai, they were so respected that people would ask you, who do you agree with, Shalel or Hermai? You know, you got to be one or the other. That's how respected they were. There was also a man named Gamaliel who, ta who taught Saul of Tarsus and a man named Nicodemus. 
whom Jesus would later call the teacher of Israel. Now, we're not told specifically what famous rabbis were present during this feast, but it was common for those men and men like that who were famous rabbis to sort of hold class sessions during the Passover and feast days because you had more students, right? People had traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover, and so they had an opportunity to teach so many more people than normal, and so people would flock to them. And that year, as the crowds gathered in that southeastern corner of the innermost courtyard to hear these famous men, there is a 12-year-old boy sitting right in the middle of things, and he's listening. And he's asking questions. Boy, wouldn't you love to know what questions Jesus asked? We're just not told, though, are we? Knowing Jesus, though, we can confidently say that none of the questions were asked out of arrogance. None of the questions were asked to make the rabbis look dumb. Okay, it wasn't, you know, a game show, stump the rabbi, nothing like that. They were genuine searching questions from a perfect adolescent. One author said this, I love this quote, that Jesus' questions were pure questions of innocence and truth, which keenly and deeply penetrated into the confused errors of the rabbinical teaching. I love that thought, and it makes a lot of sense. Sometimes the simple, innocent question of a child has a way of convicting you. They're not trying to be ugly. They're not trying to, you know, to pull the rug out from under you. They're just asking a question, and it makes you think. Brother Doug and I were talking about this. I'm sure this has never happened to y'all, but have you ever been driving? And an innocent child from the back seat says, Dad, the speed limit says 55. Why are you driving 65? Ah. Ah. <laughs> Is it not possible that as Jesus asked his questions, the rabbis and the people listening were forced to consider their practices, their purposes, um, their own interpretations of the law, the rabbis were extremely respected, but they weren't perfect, and their interpretations were not flawless, and we know how far off track Judaism was in practice from what God intended it to be when he gave the law. They went through the motions, but they neglected the heart of the matter. They tried their best to keep the letter of the law, but they forgot the spirit in which it was given. And Jesus would later condemn them for that. He would later tell the hypocritical Pharisees that you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. He said, these you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Roughly 20 years later, Jesus would come back to that very temple and cleanse it because it was supposed to be a house of prayer, but they had turned it into a den of thieves. For now, it was not yet time for Jesus to be so brazen. That time would come. But as a 12-year-old, he listened and he asked questions. And sometimes those simple questions of a youth that can be very convincing, very convicting, I should say. Why are we doing it like this? Can you explain that when Deuteronomy says this? I think his questions might have convicted their hearts just like his lectures and living later would. 
but he wasn't just this inquisitive boy who just kept asking question after question after question after question. Notice the people were not amazed at his questions. They were amazed and astonished at his understanding and his answers. That's what verse 47 says. Mark used the same word of amazement to describe the disciples' reaction to Jesus calming the storm. That same amazement. The next time Luke used this word in his gospel was when Jesus raised a young girl back from the dead. It's that astonishment. These people were astonished. Not by his questions, not by the fact that he might have had some knowledge of the Old Testament. Anybody can memorize Scripture. Jesus possessed understanding. It means insight, comprehension. One lexicon said this word denotes the ability to understand concepts, and I love this, and see relationships between them. Jesus didn't just know, we're coming to Passover because it's in the spring. He knew more than that. He understood the relationship between things. So by the age of 12, he hadn't just memorized scripture. He hadn't just learned technical definitions. He connected things. He comprehended things and he saw those relationships. And I think it's safe to say that he probably understood Passover better than anyone there that day. This 12-year-old boy shocked the people. And on the one hand, I think this is worth saying. Jesus' interest in spiritual things, his understanding, it speaks well of Mary and Joseph. They were parents who loved the Lord. They faithfully brought him to Jerusalem each year. He saw in them faithfulness. So parents, you have a big responsibility to cultivate in your children a love for God and teach them his word. Mary and Joseph were not perfect. But God chose a faithful couple. But this was beyond good parenting, right? Jesus' level of understanding points to his deity as well, right? He was the son of God. Just as the angel Gabriel had prophesied to Mary some 12 years earlier, so it doesn't shock us that he shocked everybody else. But Mary's reaction might be shocking to us. Did she not remember who her son was? Look at verse 48. She's amazed at Jesus. And she even offers this sort of light rebuke. You know, why'd you do this to us? We've been searching for you and this has just been tearing us up. We've been sorrowing. But Jesus' response in verse 49 is another one of his amazing answers that day. Look at verse 49 again. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? Some translations say in the things of my father, in my father's house, and, and the point is the same here. Jesus understood that he must be immersed in spiritual matters, in the things of his father. And there's several layers I want to point out here, several layers to his answer. First of all, don't overlook how Luke has been referring to Mary and Joseph throughout this story. Look back at verse 41. They were his parents. Right? Look at verse 43, though. He separated them. They were distinctly Joseph and his mother. 
perhaps that reminds us of the virgin birth. And perhaps it sets up for this conversation between Mary and Jesus. Because notice Mary's words in verse 48. She does not say Joseph and I, but thy father and I. Well, truly speaking, Joseph was not his father, was he? God was. I'm not meaning to pick on Mary because she knew that. But Luke chose his words carefully because it highlights Jesus' answer. When Mary says, your father and I have been looking for you, and he's saying, I've been about the things of my father. His father's business wasn't carpentry. It was spiritual things. And that's one of, if not the most important truths here, is that these are the very first recorded words in the life of Jesus. The very first thing the Gospels ever record him saying, and they point to the fact that he knew who he was. It proved his self-awareness. He knew that he was God's son, that his true father was in heaven. He understood his mission here on earth, and he was compelled to be in and among the things of his heavenly father. This word that he used, must, is a very strong word that points to a necessity. Sometimes it's used of something that's part of God's divine plan or God's will. So by 12 years old, Jesus had complete self-awareness and he understood the demand of his person. That's a lot for a 12-year-old, right? Did Joseph and Mary not understand this? And that's sort of the final aspect about Jesus' answer I want, I want to point out. And it's that he was not being disrespectful at all. But rather, the way he answered this question would force Mary to think about it. Jesus answered Mary's question with another question. Which, interestingly enough, was a common way rabbis taught. Rabbis would answer questions with a question. Jesus did that throughout his ministry. You remember when the religious leaders challenged him and asked him about his authority? Where did your authority come from? And he said, let me ask you a question. Where did John's authority come? Where did it come from? And they didn't answer, so he said, well, I'm not going to answer you either then. <laughs> One time they asked him if they should pay taxes. He said, well, whose image is on a coin? He answered their question with a question. Okay, some teachers tell you the answer, and that's fine. The best teachers lead you to figure out the answer for yourself. And one way to do that, and a way that many ancient rabbis did, was by asking a question. So this 12-year-old boy, who has been listening to these respected rabbis for a few days, now sounds a lot like one himself. And he answers his mother's question with a question, not to be disrespectful, but to force Mary and Joseph to start thinking again about who he actually was. Because notice in verse 50, it makes it clear that they didn't have the same insight and understanding that Jesus did, right? They understood not the same which he spake unto them. But again, we say, why not? I mean, they knew of his virgin birth. They were both visited by angels. They were there when the shepherds came. They were there when the, the wise men came. Why are they not getting this? 
Well, I think there's two things here. First, should it really surprise us that they didn't have perfect awareness? They didn't have the completed New Testament. We do, and we still don't have perfect awareness, right? We're blessed, but we don't know it all. In Jesus' ministry, his own disciples constantly misunderstood him. So the fact that they don't completely get it just yet proves their people. But also, those miraculous things that surrounded his birth happened 12 years ago. That's a long time ago. There was a lot of normal life that happened between Jesus' birth and this temple episode. I love what one author said. He wrote the 12 silent, uneventful years of life at Nazareth, the poor home, the village carpentry, the natural development of the sacred child had gradually, had gradually obscured for Mary and Joseph the memories of the infancy. They had not forgotten them, but time and circumstances had covered them with a veil. Now they were very gently reminded by the boy's own quiet words of what had happened 12 years before. And notice verse 51, the end of the verse. I believe this episode did sort of bring back to the surface sort of those things in Mary's heart and her mind from the birth because notice the end of verse 51, Luke writes, his mother kept all these things in her heart, which if you look back at verse 19, it echoes the same thing she did when the shepherds came. She pondered these things in her heart. So here's the only 12-year-old in history who did know more than his parents. And yet he did not rebel. He didn't protest. He didn't roll his eyes and do the shoulder slump. He didn't have a bad attitude about going back home either. Look at the first part of verse 51. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. He submitted to them. Say, I thought he must be about the things of his father. He was. Going back home and being an obedient son to Mary and Joseph was exactly what God the Father wanted him to do. Jerusalem could wait. Jesus would spend the next 18 years of his life quietly in Nazareth, growing and maturing similar to those first 12 years. In fact, Luke closed this episode with another summary of Jesus' maturation process that reads a little similar to verse 40. But let's look at verse 52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Notice in this verse the balance maturity in the life of Jesus. He grew physically, right? As he aged, we understand that. That's stature. He increased, but he also increased in wisdom. Both knowledge and the application of it and the living it out. And he increased in favor, in grace. One author noted that Jesus matured physically, intellectually, spiritually, and socially. I love that. He grew up exactly as you would expect the sinless Son of God to do. 
And Luke notes specifically that both God and men looked graciously and favorably upon him. But people have asked the question before, how could Jesus increase in the grace of God? I mean, was the Father's grace lacking at any point in his son's life? And no, that's not the point. But just think of it this way. As Jesus aged and matured day after day, year after year, he had more time more opportunities to demonstrate his faithfulness and all of these admirable characteristics as the Father just continued to look favorably upon him. I don't have a problem saying more and more each day, but it didn't mean that his Father's grace was ever incomplete in his life. But men also looked favorably upon him, right? Men saw this young man. Boy, he was just a boy of grace. The men had a, had a favorable response to this young man, which that fascinates me because in just a couple of decades, men would crucify him. What changed? As he's growing up, he's increasing in the grace of men. One author said this, men admired holiness until it became aggressive. And then it roused them to an antagonism bitter in proportion to their previous admiration. Seeing this child demonstrate godliness and holiness as he grew into a man was fascinating and encouraging to people. But once he was grown, his holiness challenged them. There was a, a charm of a child growing into a young man and serving God, but that turned into a very convicting adult. And they didn't like it. It's the only story we know of Jesus' childhood. That's it. The Holy Spirit could have inspired Luke to record any number of stories that detailed Jesus' growth and, and showed his uncharacteristic wisdom. This wasn't the only one. Surely not. But this was it. It wasn't to detail some failure that fueled a desire for greatness. It wasn't, there's no mention of some Old Testament hero that he grew up idolizing. But what it did was prove that by the age of 12, he knew exactly who he was and exactly why he was here. He was God's son whose life must be immersed in the things of God. If we want to press the significance of his age, being right at 12... Okay, right when Jewish boys become accountable, Jesus was ready. He knew who he was and why he was here. But what about you? Do you understand who you are and why you're here? That may seem like a really complicated question of identity. And I'm not going to chase a rabbit here but especially in our world today when some people can't even decide if they're male or female. It's not that difficult. That's a whole different issue. Satan will use anything he can to confuse people. The question about who you are and why you're here is not complicated. It's deep, but it's not complicated. And here's the answer. You are a wonderful, beautiful creation of God. You are also a sinner who's fallen short of God's glory. 
but you can be forgiven because of the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And that's why you are here, to trust Jesus as your Savior and then to live a life serving and worshiping the God who made you and saved you. In one way, you're here on this earth for the same reason Jesus was. You need to be immersed in the things of your heavenly Father. Make your relationship to God the most important thing in your life. And you don't have to be some magical age for that to happen. You can make that commitment to Christ as a child, as a teenager, as an adult, as an elderly person. If you have never done that, trust Him to save you today and make that commitment to Him. Be about the things of the Father. That's what life's all about. I read from Ecclesiastes earlier. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. If you were looking for a New Year's resolution, there you go. Be more about the things of your Father this year. And for the rest of your life. Don't just make it this year. And be so thankful that Jesus was willing to be about the things of his Father. If he was not obedient to his heavenly Father's will, we would not have a Savior. If he's not your Savior, I pray that you would trust him today. Let's stand. As we prepare for an invitation, let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for leading Luke to record this great story. We might want to know so much more about Jesus' childhood, but this is all we need. We praise you for his example of knowing who he was and why he was here, and I pray that each one of us today understands that in our own lives as well. And if someone here is, is lost and has never trusted you, God, I pray that you would convict them. I pray that they would trust in Jesus before it's too late. And those of us who have done that, God, give us the, the desire and the, and the ability to focus more on you in our lives each day. Help us to be faithful and forgive us when we fail you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.